0: Well, good morning, everybody. It is, uh, it is tremendous to be here, and what emotions are filling my heart right now. I can't even uh, explain them all, but what a compassionate church this is, what a loving church this is, what a spirit-filled church this is. Just watching my daughters uh, worship like that, uh, it's amazing. This, this church is full of the Spirit, and I am quite excited to be here today. For those of you that know me, uh, my iPad's acting up here. For those of you that know me, you already know who I am, but uh, those of you who don't, I am Cody McPherson, and I've been here in this community now for seven years working at Camden Primary, now known as Preble Shawnee Elementary School. And uh, this community has become very special and near and dear to my heart. And over the past year or two, God has been showing me that this is where he wants me. He's been closing doors uh, closer to where we used to live, uh, near Bellbrook, Beaver Creek. Recently, we moved to the edge of Miamisburg near Germantown so that I could commit to the school district. And and then right around December, um, Greg and I met up at a basketball game. We got to talking about what the Lord was doing in each of our lives. And he realized I had moved to Miamisburg. And we got to talking about ministry. And, and one thing led to another, and here we are. And it's been two months in the making, so I'm very excited to actually be here. But again, the root of this juncture is that I have a desire to do more for the kingdom in this community. I don't want to spend 30 years of a career teaching without attaching it to the kingdom. I don't want to be said, Mr. M was a good music teacher, but he didn't disciple. Obviously, as a public educator, I'm limited as to what I can do in the building. So this is a great opportunity, if it's the Lord's will, to disciples, students of Preble Shawnee and other districts, of course, but this community, and to get them the gospel and work with families and disciple families so that we can all reach more people with the gospel. So it might surprise you to see me up here, then, if you know me as a music teacher, because I normally that's all I do. Uh, but preaching is actually kind of in my DNA. My father is a preacher of a different denomination, but I grew up Uh, hearing the Word preached daily, or not daily, but uh, weekly. Yeah, daily, that would be something, wouldn't it? But weekly, and so every Sunday I would hear him preach, and maybe that's been passed on to me somehow. But feeling the Lord leading in my life, I do feel like preaching from the pulpit, teaching God's Word is something that um, I don't have the seminary degrees, but I have the raw ability, and I pray the Lord would continue to grow in me as I uh, pursue this path of associate pastor and preaching from time to time. I do talk fast, and I am excited, so hopefully uh, you're able to understand some things I say today, uh, but uh, I'll try to slow down a little bit here. Um, I heard from Pastor Greg that he takes you all through sections of Scripture. I like that kind of preaching, expository preaching of God's Word, because it's not my words that matter, it's the Word of God that matters. And so, uh, but I thought just a section of Scripture wasn't ambitious enough for us, so we're going to do an entire book of the Bible today, okay? Uh, <laughs> I'm serious, actually, but it's, it's the book of Philemon. Would you turn there with me if you grab a copy of God's Word in front of you? I'm reading from the New King James, so it should match up with what you read in your pew Bible. Philemon is a one-page book right before Hebrews. And boy, before I move on, what a great thing it is to see so many uh, young people with us and multi-generation. It's amazing that your church has this multi-generation, so praise the Lord for that. Back to uh, the sermon title here and the... Uh, the book. It's Philemon. It's right before Hebrews, and you might be wondering how in the world is a 25-verse book included in the canon of Scripture? I mean, shouldn't a book be longer when we have books like Psalms and Romans and Acts? Well, actually, Philemon's not alone. Jude, Second John, and Third John are all 25 verses or less. So God, clearly through his Holy Spirit, can teach us lessons even from the shortest of, of books, and that's Uh, What I pray we will see today. So if you would, join me in prayer as we pray that God would open our hearts to the meaning of Philemon and that we could apply it. Let's pray. God, we come to you in prayer today, quieting our hearts, quieting our minds before you. We ask you that you would come into our our minds and our hearts and, and you would focus us on your word this morning. Help the words, Father, that I say this morning to not be my opinions or my feelings, but rather... May my words be rooted and grounded in spirit and truth that comes from the spirit of Christ living within me. Help me to exposit the word this morning so that we could learn what you were inspiring in this book, amen So we, this is our prayer this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of us are familiar with the story of a contractor, a crooked contractor who rips you off. If I did a show of hands, I'm sure all of us have had a time in our life where we've been ripped off by someone who we paid to do work. Maybe they did a poor job, or maybe they just completely ripped us off. Well, I have a story for you from Florida, Orlando, Florida. The title of this article said, I feel like he took my money and ran. Contractor, accused of taking big deposits, not doing work. It's the classic contractor trap in Florida. You've paid a big deposit, but the work has never started. Hurricane season is here, so Stephen Rivera hired storm restoration services in Altamonte Springs to replace his leaky roof and prevent more damage. He said, oh, it's going to take me just two or three weeks probably to get the materials, and then we'll get the job done in one day. But Rivera said that his insurance approved the job, and he paid storm restoration services $6,000 in a deposit. But months later, he still doesn't have a new roof and has tried repeatedly to get a hold of the company. Nothing. No answer, no replies, no nothing. I feel like he took the money and ran. How many of us have a story like this in our lives where we've been ripped off by somebody, right? I want you to put yourself in Mr. Rivera's shoes now with a hypothetical situation. What if this really happened to you, but one year, maybe two years later, the top contractor in the United States he sent you a letter in the mail, and he said, I know this is hard to believe, but that contractor that ripped you off, I met, I met him, and he is now a member of the Roofing Association of America, and he's one of the best, and I'm going to send him back to you to do that work. Please receive him. What would you do? What would you do if that happened to you? Would you actually receive this man back for a second chance? Would you trust him if he came knocking on your door? I think most of us would probably say absolutely not, right? In the day of Google reviews, we'd probably go on there and say, this guy ripped me off, don't go with him. And so I I think it's interesting because in the book of Philemon, we're going to see a very similar interaction between a man named Philemon and the Apostle Paul. And this interaction will provide us with some insight that just might surprise you. So I think we have the title that we can put up now. Uh, if you're taking notes today, you can uh, write down Christian maturity, approaching complex situations with Christ-like wisdom. A long title there, but I think it's appropriate to know that maturity is focused in this sermon and it's focused on complex situations in our lives that we might encounter. Let's read the verses of Philemon. It's, uh, 25 verses is a little bit long to read for a sermon, but uh, if you go with me, I think you'll uh, see that reading all 25, it's very important to understand this book. So let's read Philemon. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow laborer, to the beloved Athia, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God, mentioning, making mention of you always in my prayers hearing of your love and faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints, that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. For we have great joy and consolation in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. Therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you Being such a one as Paul, the aged, and now a prisoner of Jesus Christ, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains, who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. I'm sending him back. You therefore receive him, that is, my own heart, whom I wish to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel." But without your consent, I wanted to do nothing, that your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. For perhaps he departed a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you count me as a partner, receive him as you would receive me. But if he has wronged you, Or owes you anything, put that on my account. I, Paul, am writing with my own hand. I will repay, not to mention to you that you owe me, even your own self Besides, Yes, brother, let me have joy from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in the Lord. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. But meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me. For I trust that through your prayers, I shall be granted to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. And if you were following with me, you probably know exactly what happens in this, but it's important still to go through verse by verse and see what applications we can make. But before we do that, I want to give you some background on Philemon that I think is critical to understanding this book it was obviously written by Paul. We know verse 1 clearly says Paul is the author. And he's in prison, and he identifies himself as an aged person. I'm not saying that he's old, but he's in his 60s. I don't think in 2022 that means you're old, by the way. But he said he's older in years. And actually, uh, they don't know the exact year, but two to five years after this book was written, Paul was martyred. And so he is nearing the end of his life, wishing to minister to young people, leaders of the churches and to young churches so that the gospel can be carried forth in the first century. He is, of course, the former persecutor of Christians whom God has chosen on the road to Damascus. He said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Arise, be baptized, and wash away your sins by calling on the name of the Lord. So he has chosen Paul. He has set apart Paul for work in the New Testament here to preach to the Jews but also the Gentiles that the message of Christ is for all to realize that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. So he has now been used by the Lord to write 13 New Testament books. Many of us consider Paul to be our favorite writer. You know, he's just so prolific in his writing that we, uh, we really attribute much to, of our learning in, through Christ to Paul. By, again, his own account, he's older, he's nearing this earthly departure, and he wants to pour into these churches. And so one of those churches is the church in Colossae. And that is in the house of Philemon. Now, keep your place in Philemon, but if you would, also turn to Colossians 4. We're going to be looking at some verses in Colossians 4 that prove this church is Colossae. All right, the Colossaean church. First in Colossians 4, verse 9 and 17, we see two names that we uh, read in Philemon. Those are Archippus and Onesimus, okay? So if you glance through Colossians 4, 9 and Colossians 4, 17, you see those two men and we can connect the dots then to know that most likely those are the two same people we read up in Philemon. You can kind of tab at Colossians 4 because we will come back to that. But that's how we know Philemon, our next character, is from Colossae. And he's also a slave owner So we know he's probably pretty wealthy, because to own slaves, you had to have some wealth. And if the church is meeting in your home, then you probably have a big home. Uh, So as we know, wealth can kind of be a snare, so that's just something important to note about Philemon. And as soon as I mentioned that he's a slave owner, if your red flag didn't stick up, well, hopefully it does now, because slavery, as we know, is always, will always, and has always been wrong, all right? So why in the world is slavery even in the Bible? This is something that people throw at Christians to try and trip us up, to try and say, look, at you, you're inconsistent. You, slavery's in your Bible. But there's really an explanation for this. First of all, uh, and I don't wanna go exhaustively into this topic of slavery. If you wanna do your own research, I encourage it. Very interesting topic. But it's important to know that it's not the same slavery that we know of in America, where Africans were shackled and sold and abused and tortured and forced into labor. That is obviously despicable. And thankfully, it's, it's not in our country anymore. Uh, and also, we're told in Colossians 4, this is where I want you to look again in Colossians 4, verse 1. Specifically, masters are told, it says, Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So most likely, the slavery of this time was more of an employee-employer relationship, where someone of poverty could kind of give themselves over to someone of wealth, like Philemon, and become a slave, uh, a bondservant, if you will. And they would learn a trade. Maybe it was woodworking. Maybe it was making clothing. Whatever the slave owner would need, they would learn that trade and become quite skilled, actually, in that trade. And in return, they would be given some sort of compensation, whether it be food or clothing or lodging. And so that was most of the circumstances of Christians owning slavery, for sure, in the New Testament, more of an employee employer relationship but you still might be asking well if slavery is not good because it's like another person owning another person why didn't paul just say stop having slaves so i did some research on this i found some good comments from john macarthur he's a, a pastor teacher bible teacher in america very well renowned and he said this if christians had decided to tell slaves to revolt and leave their masters nothing but disaster would have happened Any such revolt would have been savagely crushed by the powerful Roman Empire. And Christianity would have been branded as nothing more than some kind of revolution, some treason. And the gospel would have looked like a message of social justice rather than what it truly is, which is a global equalizer of all men to realize all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The point is that even if you were a slave on earth with faith in Christ, You were eternally free. And so rather than condemn slavery, Paul chooses to acknowledge it exists. And he discusses how believers should then apply the gospel to those relationships just as it is applied to other relationships. And that's what we read in Colossians 4. If you read that chapter and just prior to it, you see how slaves should treat their masters and how masters should treat their slaves. And so it's a great example of how the gospel should be applied to all of our relationships. Anyway, This is not an exhaustive study of slavery. I do encourage you to go into it. All right, back to Philemon. We've talked about Paul. We've talked about Philemon. The last main character is the former runaway slave, Onesimus. Very unique name. I've never heard of a child named Onesimus in our (laughs) culture. Uh, As stated, he's a runaway slave. If you noticed in verse 17 through 19, if he owes you anything, and also Paul says, I'm sending him back to you. So we know that he has run away. We don't know the specifics of that, but he is a runaway slave, but now a convert of Paul, a brother in Christ. He's actually tasked, as you read back in, man, I keep going back to Colossians 4. Colossians 4 also mentions a guy named Tychicus, who with Onesimus is going to send the letter of Philemon and Colossians to that church so that they can be uh, given instruction from Paul. So he is, in other words, a welcomed and esteemed member Of that church now with clear work to do for the Lord now as we go through these 25 verses I hope we are able to see five points of Christian maturity five points that we should all strive to apply to our lives as we interact with others in a complex world with strange and difficult situations that each of us will encounter and I pray that these lessons of maturity will be applicable to you and I trust that they will be oh there's a nice breeze that turns the pages up here have you noticed that keep wanting Philemon to flip. Maybe we're supposed to study before this here. Okay. All right. Let's look at the first point. Mature Christians express their love. Mature Christians express their love. Look at the first seven verses with me. Paul does not, he knows this is a complex situation. He does not just jump right in and say, here's what you need to do. He starts with an expression of love, and he does that in four ways. Look at verse one. This is an affirmation. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus to Timothy and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow laborer. Jump down to verse 7. He continues affirming Philemon. He says, we have great joy and consolation in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. If you're in a church, and this church is an example, you should be in a state of affirmation with those around you. If you just come in and shake hands and sit down and leave, what are you doing to bolster the work of the Lord? What are you doing to encourage and edify and build up one another and strengthen one another? Notice what Paul does. He is telling Philemon specifically what he is. He is a friend. He is a laborer. He gets joy and consolation, and the hearts of the saints are refreshed. I'm encouraged by this church because I've heard so many people affirm your pastor, I'm not trying to inflate your ego. I don't think that's possible. He's a very humble man. But they've been specific, and they've said, Greg is a wonderful pastor. He is patient. He is loving. He is kind. And he is true to the word. This is affirmation. This helps your church be rooted and grounded in a leader and leadership that knows what the Bible teaches and knows how to teach it. Affirm your Christian brothers and sisters, whether it be janitorial staff children's workers, anyone, affirm, especially if you're going to give advice as Paul is about to give. Let's go to this, uh, the uh, second way he expresses his love, still on point one, but this is through thankfulness. Thankfulness. Look at uh, verse four with me. He said, I thank my God, making mention of you always in my prayers. Notice that he does not just pray to the Lord. I mean, that's important. We should pray to God for all of our church family, but we should also tell one another that we're praying for them. As Renee is navigating a difficult time, and I don't know your each unique circumstances, but pray for Renee and her family, but tell her you're praying for her. That is going to encourage her. That is going to lift up her spirits. And from the sound of it, you already have been doing that, which is a great thing. Be thankful for your brothers and sisters in the Lord and tell them you are thankful for them. He also expresses his love through acknowledging the specifics of his work. Verse five says that he's heard of the love and faith which he has toward the Lord and toward all the saints. So again, be specific. When you affirm one another, that's good. You can say, love you, brother. Love you, sister. Thank you for your work. But go into specifics. Thank you for keeping our church clean. Thank you for doing the secretary duties. Thank you for running the children's ministry. Thank you for running the nursery. Whatever it might be, thank you, deacons. Thank you, anyone. Be specific on what they do. And that will encourage the team. Now, what does all of this do? When you're, when you're encouraged, when you're uh, prayed for, when you're affirmed, it not only encourages you, but it gives you a sense of that what you're doing in the Lord is, is right. If you're not hearing something of affirmation, you either need to check what you're doing to make sure it is of the Lord, or maybe you need to reach out to others and show them what affirmation looks like. So again, we need to express our love. It's a very important thing. Seven verses here, aren't for nothing. This expression of love needs to be in our life if we want to claim to be mature in Christ. The final way he is uh, expressing his love is through petition. Verse six says, he prays that the sharing of the faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ. Make no mistake, the things that we are affirming in one another are not of ourselves. There is nothing good that we can do but through Christ. We're affirming that. Your past... Is irrelevant if you're in Christ. You can be used in a mighty purpose, and that's what we should be praying for one another. Use this person. Please, Father, use Greg to lead this church, to be sound in the word. Those type of things. Affirm and petition the Lord to use us as he would. Again, nothing within us is possible to do good. We must petition from the Lord. And so these seven verses have been laid the groundwork, and now we get to the sticky situation in Philemon. So point two is that mature Christians ponder their approach. If you know someone in your life that needs advice, I would suggest you don't just jump right in and whack them over the head with the truth. Even though it's true, look what Paul does. Verse eight, therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you. You see, He is Paul. He is the Apostle Paul, and he is well-known, and he could very well say, Philemon, you need to do this. How do we know that? You ever read 1 Corinthians? Okay. He tells the Corinthian church, you need to stop doing this. So it could happen. There are circumstances. But in this case, Philemon, the dear brother, he ponders his approach, and he chooses to appeal. Think of a time in your life when you've either been an employee or a I don't know, any interaction where someone has commanded you to do something versus when they have appealed you. I can almost guarantee you're gonna have more fond memories of the person who appealed you than commanded you, all right? Not every time, and sometimes bosses have to do commands, but when a leader comes alongside me and shows me the why, I am much more likely to listen and be willing to do what they suggest. And so that's what he's doing here is appealing. And he's applying what, The New Testament says, if you want to, you can turn to James 1.9. It's a few pages to the right there. James 1.19, excuse me. James has said, so then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Hey, I'm practicing what I'm preaching. Those of you that know me, I'm high energy, and I'm a pretty quick talker. Uh, and so it's, it's hard for me sometimes when I have situations that I need to tell somebody what to do or recommend something. Sometimes I just jump in there and start, you know, jaws of flapping. You need to just be patient and to set the groundwork with love and then appeal. All right. So he continues this pondering of the approach because if he knows of the hurt that Onesimus has caused by Laman, And as soon as he mentions the name Onesimus in verse 10, no doubt Philemon probably went, whoa, you know that guy? Let me tell you what he did to me. So to prevent that, what does Paul immediately say? He says, I have begotten him in my chains. In other words, this guy that we both know, he's now a brother in Christ. Folks, when the gospel grips someone's heart, the old man is gone. And the new person that you see is a new person. And it's Christ the reflection of Christ in that person. It's not anything good that they've polished up, but the Spirit of the Lord has descended upon them, and what you see is Christ living in them. And there is no doubt in my mind that as soon, and Paul knew this too, that as soon as Philemon read, he's begotten in my chains, he's now a brother, Philemon probably changed the whole thought process. Because what were we in our former lives? We were useless. Verse 11, look at this. Onesimus was once unprofitable to you, but now he's he's profitable to you and to me. Us and our lives were the same. Philemon was Onesimus. I was Onesimus. You were Onesimus. We all are Onesimus if we're currently running away, but all of us have the ability through the sovereign gift and grace of God to turn the other way and become the profitable Onesimus. In my own life, when I was nine, I was raised in the a home that taught the Word, and I've since there's some disagreements amongst the, the family uh, over which denomination is right, but I, I am thankful that I was raised in a home that taught God's Word. And I realized at the age of nine in October of 2000, if I just made you feel old, I'm sorry, but I realized that my sins, like my wife said, which by the way, I don't deserve my family, I don't deserve them, but by God's grace, just like salvation, um, I'm thankful for that. Anyway, when I was nine, I realized that I, even at nine, had done bad things, and these bad things had a consequence, and that was eternal separation from God, and that scared the living daylights out of me as a nine-year-old, and I knew, even at nine, whether you're nine or 99, sin separates you from God, period, and I realized that at nine, that night, with faith and accepting of the, of the pricking of the heart that God had done in me, I was saved. And then that night, in this specific denomination, they baptized quickly. I was baptized later that night. And since that night, I have tried my best to give my life to the Lord. I've never been perfect, but I have been consistently serving the Lord in ministries, trying my best to be useful and profitable, just as Onesimus is now, and just as Paul is trying to restore a relationship that in Onesimus' former life. So maybe you came to the Lord later than me, and it's been hard for you to work with others of Christ because of your past. Let me encourage you to set that aside, because guess what? The Lord already has. And a true brother or a true sister will accept you. They won't reject you, and they won't look at your past, and they won't hold that against you, but bring you right beside them, and they'll say, let's work. Let's get to work. So verse 12 Continues with Paul's underscoring of his confidence. He says, I'm sending him back. Receive him, therefore. That is my own heart. He's so confident that um, through Christ, Philemon, or excuse me, Onesimus is a new man, that he says, He's got my own heart. And he says in 13, I'm so confident, I wish I could keep him with me, that he might minister on your behalf to me in my chains. But one more pondering of the approach. In verse 14, he says, I don't want to do anything without your consent, though, that the good deed that you do might not be from compulsion, but voluntary. It's important, again, that we we understand what the gospel does, and we willingly and we lovingly work together with those who are new converts to work together for the gospel. Amazing. The third point here about mature Christianity is that we should understand God's sovereignty. Mature Christians understand God's sovereignty. Verses 15 and 16 clearly tell us this. For perhaps he departed a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Paul states that Onesimus' journey was destined. It was purposeful. Every step of his life from his status as a slave to his rebellion and running away to his sovereign crossing of paths with Paul to his conversion and now to his potential reconciliation with Philemon. All of it was used by God to illustrate the power of the gospel in making a servant into a brother. We all have been slaves to sin, but by Christ we are set free. It is destined, it is purposeful. God is sovereign. If we believe in his omnipotence, his his omniscience, his omnipresence, all the omnis of God, his majesty, then surely we understand that God can use every moment of our lives, our rebellion and our faithfulness for his glory. He will reveal his will. That's why we pray God's will be done. If he didn't have a will, why would we say it? We pray as the scriptures tell us, not not my will, Jesus said, but thine be done. So God has a will and he does reveal that to us and we can even see in our moments of rebellion, while those were obviously moments of our choosing sin, but he's using that to ultimately pair us with him and we can then maybe find someone along our way that has a struggle that we did and we can say, you know what? I used to struggle like that, but God changed me and he can change you too. So don't underestimate what God can do in someone's life. If you have a wayward family member, A wayward child, don't give up on him because any sinner can be saved and used by God for a mighty purpose. Look no further than Onesimus, a thief, a rebel. He used Onesimus. He can use someone in your family or your life as well. And may it be a guide for us then in our daily lives that every relationship we have is a part of God's purpose. Every relationship. Fourthly, mature Christians model Christ's sacrifice, and forgiveness. If you notice here, what Paul does is he doesn't just express the love and appeal and tell him that God is sovereign and then end it. He goes one step further, and this step is amazing. Verse 17, first he says, if you count me a partner, receive him as you would receive me, In other words, when Onesimus comes around the corner to hand you the letter that I've written, which, by the way, back then, there was no email. So Onesimus and Tychicus are bringing this letter. Awkward, right? And so maybe at first, he's like, what are you doing back here? Reads the letter. So receiving him as you would receive me means that when Philemon looks at Onesimus, he sees Paul, not Onesimus. In other words, When we are new in Christ, people look at us. They don't see us in our past and our sin. They see Christ living in us. And Paul is about to show you what that looks like. Verse 18 and 19, if he has wronged you or owes you anything, put that on my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay. We'll get to the second half there in a second. But does that sound familiar? It should. If you're new in Christ, and you're a believer, Christ did exactly what Paul did, but on a much grander scale. He took the sins that I had done of my own selfishness, and he said, I'll take them right here, and I'll pay for them. And the debt is wiped clean, and now there is no record of wrong. Now, I'm not saying you have to specifically pay for other people's debts, but I am saying that the spiritual discipline of looking upon others who are maybe young in the faith, who have some mess from their former life, help them. Don't just, you know, a welcome to the church and then never connect with them. Find ways to help young converts. Find ways. Maybe it is taking their debt. But the the essence of this is that we should model what the gospel has done in our life. Christ took our debts. He paid for them on the cross. And so then, what does that do? It propels our lives into that direction to model the forgiveness and sacrifice which has been lavishly shown to us. The least we can do is to show others such love. So, you might be wondering why he, in verse 19... Goes the direction he goes. Not to mention to you that you owe me your own self. Not to mention you, you know, you owe me. <laughs> a little interesting. But I, I really think he's not meaning this as a guilt trip, but a simple reminder of reality. Folks, the Bible says, Beautiful are the feet that carry the good news of the gospel. How can you believe unless you have heard? So clearly here, clearly here. Paul is saying, Philemon, just to make sure you do restore this relationship, remember for one swift second that unless you had heard from me the gospel, you would be gone too. So all of us should be very thankful for the people in our lives that brought us the good news of the gospel. Don't get mistaken that it was from them alone. Of course, God used them. But we should be thankful for our pastors, our parents, our neighbors, our friends, our teachers, Whoever brought you the good news of the gospel, it is important to acknowledge that, because without them, you would be dead in your sins, and that is what Paul is doing there, saying not to mention, you owe me your own self, besides, it motivates us to follow through on these matters needing forgiveness when we know that Christ has forgiven us, all right. Moving on to point five, this is our final point, by the way, mature Christians trust other believers. When the rubber meets the road and you are faced with a difficult, complex scenario, can you actually trust your, your uh, brother, excuse me, or sister to do what you ask? Well, there's reasons for doing this. First of all, in verse 20, it's a refreshment. It, it brings great joy when you can trust one another to do what is right. It says there, yes, brother, let me have joy from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in the Lord. And so please, learn from this. Trust one another. Know that if you love your fellow brother or sister and you ask one another or you are having that difficult conversation with a family member, you gotta have trust in them and you gotta trust in the Lord too. This is important. We see in the case of uh, verse 21, two trusts and two maturities then. Paul is saying here, having confidence in your obedience, I write to you knowing you will do more than I say. One trust is from Paul. He's trusting that Philemon is going to do what he says. And one maturity is from Philemon, that he will, as a mature brother, follow through and forgive Onesimus. So let's learn from this. Let's be trustworthy in our relationships and demonstrate that maturity that Paul and Philemon have. Including the letter with verse 22 through 25, 22 is kind of out of nowhere, it seems. He says, but meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me, that I trust through your prayers I shall be granted to you. When we consider trust in the life of a church, it doesn't just exist within these, well, there's not four walls, but there's a lot of walls. But it doesn't just exist in this building. Trust exists outside of these walls, and it exists in every facet of our lives, such that if you needed a place to stay or a meal to eat, you should be able to call anyone in here, and they should be able to gladly help you. That's trust. Prepare a guest room for me. That resonates with me. I used to be in the National Guard. I did that to get through college. So I did six years and four years the way through that, we moved to Dayton. So two years, the last two, I had to go back to West Virginia where my my unit was. And I resonate with that statement. I had a, a couple, they're retired, Glenn and Carol Strait, that I had such trust in them and they had such trust in me that I literally could call them up And I could say, would you prepare a room for me? I'm coming in on this weekend. And they always said yes. They never said no, even if they weren't there. Now, that's kind of weird. But yeah, if they weren't there, they said, you know where the key is. Now, you might not be able to do that, and I understand. But there is ways, there are ways that you can show great trust, great love, and great hospitality to your brothers and your sisters. All of this, this whole sermon, all of this is because doing difficult things Doing difficult things, it's all for the Lord. It takes maturity. And if you can trust one another to have a room for you, then you can trust one another to do difficult things. Or vice versa. If you can trust someone to do a difficult thing, you can trust them for hospitality too. All of this is, again, an underscore of the maturity that we are given when we are in Christ and that we need to pursue. The final lesson of trust is accountability. In 23 through 25, we see a slew of names. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers. Make no mistake, when you mention and consider the great number of people that we go to church with, there's accountability there. And if Pastor Greg, who obviously I'll get to know you all soon, but I know him most right now, but if Pastor Greg knew I was going through something complex but needed to resolve something, Me knowing he knows is gonna help me. And that's what I believe I see here in these final verses. He's kind of saying, hey, all these five guys, they know your situation too. We're all praying for you, brother. Do what's right. That's trust, that's trust. I wanna conclude by asking you, who are you in this book? Who are you? You could probably say that, Cody, I've been all three of these people at some point in my life. Let's talk about Onesimus first. Each of us has been rebellious, wicked, sinful. We've stolen glory from the Lord, putting it on ourselves, pursuing our own selfish endeavors. But God in his mercy saw use for us, didn't he? And he paired us up with someone in our life that told us the gospel. He gave us hope through that message. And what is that message? That Christ died for our sins. He paid our debt and gave us His love and righteousness so that others, when they look at us, could see that righteousness shining right back and they could go, I want to be like that. I want to know what that is. I want that life-changing message. And then we never have to fear death. As sad as it is to lose loved ones, when they don't fear death, isn't it amazing? When they have a hope beyond this life, isn't it amazing? And that's what all of us can have. We can leave our messy pasts behind and we can move forward in welcomed grace serving the Lord together. Secondly, we might at times in our life be a Philemon and need advice from other more, usually more mature believers. If you're someone my age, I need advice. I need advice from those of you who have walked and navigated the paths of life that I have yet to go down. And there might be a time in my life where you need to pour a counsel into me. And hopefully we both pray through a message that is similar to what we've seen in Philemon together. Or there might be a time where you are Paul, You could be older in years and realize what Paul has has done here and pouring Christ-like wisdom into somebody. Or you could just be uh, discipling someone who's a new convert. But in either case, you should try to put on the maturity that comes through uh, a relationship with Christ. Back to the first thing I asked you, why is this book in the Bible, 25 verses? Most of us flip right through it. How many of us before today maybe even read it and studied it this in depth? But it is clearly an inspired book of the Bible, isn't it? Because in it we see the gospel in its clearest, cleanest, rawest sense, how it changes a life and makes them useful for the Lord. Let's pray together.